Hello and welcome to the April 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo. So, April was the month that the Windrush scandal came to a head, and I'm going to start by focusing on the fallout from that before looking at an issue that would otherwise have been the leader in this update, um, which is that we had several examples of more law firms being in pretty serious trouble with the regulator over their conduct of litigation. And it's not just those representing migrants who the judges took to task. We also saw the Home Office being quite strongly criticised by the Court of Appeal for its performance in court on a deportation case. Finally, I'm running through some interesting and significant case law on the fields of deportation and on asylum before finishing on several procedural points about appeals to the tribunal. Um, the, The stuff on appeals to the tribunal, it's dry, but it's very important for us lawyers. Okay, so let's get started first of all on Windrush. Um, We posted several pieces on this over the course of April. Um, The first of these I'm going to mention is by Nick Nason. And this was about um, really Nick making the the point that legal aid would have prevented the Windrush scandal, looking at the fact that the immigration system is not as straightforward as ministers have previously suggested. Uh, Nick quotes from... Um, 2014 Silash Vara MP who was then junior minister at the Ministry of Justice who said that the immigration process is designed to be straightforward and easy to navigate therefore people in immigration cases should generally be able to deal with their own application and not need a lawyer and he then went on to justify that um, the removal of legal aid in immigration cases on that basis now of course had these um, Commonwealth long-term Commonwealth residents Windrush generation people um, had access to legal aid, then they would at least have been in a better position to regularise or or document their status. And that hasn't been the case. And as a result, the Home Office has had to set up a fairly extensive team of 20 staff dedicated specifically to sorting out these cases. So um, a um, a bit of a Chickens coming home to roost example, should we say, of um, you know, the cuts in legal aid having um, very poor consequences, really, for, for the Home Office and politically later down the line. Nick has also pointed out that um, even now, the guidance that the Home Office has been issuing um, to long-term resident Commonwealth nationals appears to us to be incorrect, because it, it says, in short, that um, you have to have been continuously resident since 1st of January 1973. Our, t- our take on this, and we're, we're fairly confident about this, is that you, um, uh, you you don't have to show continuous residence from 1973. You've only got to show it from 1988, when the law was changed in 1988. I, I don't want to go too much into the um, details of that, but it does look to us as if the Home Office is wrong in the, the Windrush guidance that's published. And I I checked just before starting this podcast recording, and and that was still the case at the time of recording um, as well. So um, it's basically about the gap in residence of up to two years and whether the um, automatic um, lapsing of of indefinite leave to remain occurs, whether somebody has to re-enter under the returning residence rules and so on. There's another um, post on Windrush, which I'd highly recommend. Um, This one by CJ, the deputy editor, who has tried to sum up the... Um, essence of the new Windrush scheme, which was announced to go live on the 30th of May and essentially replaced a helpline that had been set up under the previous Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, um, with a a more formal application process and a collection of different documents and detailed guidance for officials on different cases. And um, certainly from a a lawyer's point of view, it's very interesting looking at the, the terms of the guidance. It breaks down to different classes of um, those who might be affected and sets out exactly what the Home Office is doing in those cases. 
And again, I don't want to go through this in too much detail now in the podcast. Do have a look at the um, post in detail and, and, and by all means cross-reference to the, the documents which we've linked to as, as ever on the, um, on the website. Um, essentially, the, the guidance, it seems pretty good to us and it goes through step by step um, what kind of person we might be talking about. Are they a Commonwealth citizen who's been resident continuously since the 1st of January 1973? Although you know, in parenthesis, um, watch out for that issue around um, 1973 to 88. Um, and are they potentially already British? Um, are they entitled to naturalise as British, perhaps? And if so, the application fee for naturalisation will be waived in those cases. Although, as CJ pointed out, the um, the passport application wouldn't be waived. So they'd, they'd be entitled to a certificate showing that they're um, a British national, a British citizen. Um, but if they want to apply for an actual passport, which would be rather useful, um, then they'll have to make the normal application um, for for that and, and pay the normal fee. Um, the good character requirements will still be applied for those who do want to apply for naturalisation, but the um, residence requirements and also the need for passing the life in the UK test um, would be waived. So um, reasonably generous approach there in terms of where using the discretion that the um, British Nationality Act 1981 already um, confers on officials. Um, the, the, the different stages that this guidance goes through includes checking whether somebody has the right of abode and if so issuing a no time limit permit, checking whether they've got indefinite leave to remain or if necessarily um, granting leave as well. So um, pick through that if you've got any um, clients who are affected or if you're interested in the way that the scheme works. Um, another post um, by Solange Valdez-Simmons, um, a guest post on um, a potentially growing problem. Um, uh, uh, well, I, I would describe this, frankly, as a, a time bomb type situation. I think um, Solange wouldn't, wouldn't use those words exactly. Um, but essentially, it's the, the problem of the extremely high application fees for children to register as British citizens, which were recently increased um, to over £1,000. So they now stand at £1,000 and £12. And a parent obviously has to pay that for a child who is entitled to British citizenship but needs to be registered first. So I don't want to get into the the details of British nationality or too much, but some kids are born British and they're entitled simply to apply for a passport at some point later in their lives. Um, Other children, they become entitled to British citizenship, um, but they have to apply for registration first, otherwise they lose that entitlement. And this is is, um, the fee that Solange is talking about here. And the problem is that a fee of over £1,000 is a huge disincentive to many parents to actually make that application. And as a result, um, children are losing their entitlement to British citizenship um, later in life. And it's not just parents as well. It's also um, looked after children who have been looked after by social services departments who um, don't seem to be aware of the importance of citizenship or simply aren't aware of the child's entitlement. And it's something that's been, frankly, compounded by statements by Theresa May, the Prime Minister in Parliament, who, who, and she said that, well, children don't need to be citizens, they can just have leave to remain. Of course, totally undervaluing the real, the real importance of British citizenship, both as a means of fully integrating and getting the maximum protection and, and, and immigration states, status that's possible. Um, and of course, also passing on their status to, to, the, to their own children and so on as well. So um, really important campaign going on there. And I I'd highly recommend Solange's post and also the work that she does for the project for the registration of children as British citizens. Now, we've included in this month um, a post that we actually put out on the 1st of May, 
Um, I'm going to mention it this month anyway, even though we're only covering April. And that was the rather lengthy, frankly, briefing that I put together on the hostile environment, where it comes from, who it affects. Now, I am not going to go through the 4,000 plus words of of that briefing now. But um, if you're interested in hostile environment issues and um, want to know more about the different um, elements of it, which policies contribute to the hostile environment how it's um, the impact that it's had and how it's all done, then do have a look at that. Um, certainly quite a lot of work went into into writing the, the thing in the first place. Um, one thing I would say before moving on from this is that um, we see a lot of media references now to hostile environments. Being picky, uh, my, my definition of hostile environment is really one where we're looking at the co-opting of non-immigration officials as border guards. Um, So it's the different policies that require employers, landlords, banks, building societies, colleges and so on to check the immigration status of people um, they have contact with and essentially to to report them to the Home Office or to deny services um, to them. So I think just being nasty to immigrants is is certainly one element of current government policy. I wouldn't actually describe that as necessarily of itself being hostile environments. For me, the hostile environment is about um, third parties being involved in immigration control um, for fear of um, sanctions or, or just as a, a public duty. Okay, moving on now to the um, other big issue we're covering this month, which is solicitors firms in trouble with the courts or the regulators. So, The Solicitor Regulation Authority, the SRA, announced on the 18th of April that Malik Law Chambers um, had been essentially shut down, an intervention had been um, carried out, and the the reasons that the SRA gave were that they said there is reason to suspect dishonesty on the part of the principals um, in connection with the firm's business, and also um, that they'd failed to comply with certain SRA principles. Now, Malik Law Chambers um, was a um, significant law firm, carried out a lot of work, had a lot of clients. So that's been quite a major intervention in the uh, immigration services market, shall we say. And we could see that, um, that CJ wrote this piece, it's it's rather cheekily pointed out that rather quickly, um, one of the Malik Law Chambers competitors had very quickly placed a Google advert, paid Google advert, um, for searches for Malik Law Chambers to advertise their own services. Um, this comes after a number of um, criticisms that had been made of, of Malik Law Chambers, um, and CJ goes into the background to some of those in the blog post. So if you want to know more about what's what's happened in the past and recent criticism of that firm, then take a look at the post. Now, we also, um, in April, saw uh, an appeal to the High Court by another solicitor who'd previously been struck off by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal in December, sorry, October 2017. This is Mr. Ip of Sandbrook Solicitors, and that's a firm in Manchester, and he appealed the striking off to the High Court, and essentially um, his appeal was rejected, and the um, High Court took the view that the um, SDT, the Solicitor's Disciplinary Disciplinary Tribunal was entirely justified in imposing the sanction of striking off um, and was right to include deterrence as an aspect of its overall considerations. So um, bad news there for um, that particular solicitor. And it's not only that this month either. We also saw a judgment in a case called Sathiville. Um, It's a judicial review case reference 2018 EWHC 913 naming and um, really shaming 
three specific solicitors firms, um, David Wilde and Co. Solicitors of South Woodford in London, Samps Solicitors, offices in Manchester, London and Birmingham, and also Topstone Solicitors in London. And there's some fairly strong criticism of all three firms um, in that judgment. And in a um, considered and, I think, thoughtful blog post, Ian Halliday, one of our writers, has had a look at the general landscape on this, the background of the Hamid cases, and the duties of um, immigration solicitors. And really, it's becoming increasingly clear that the um, courts are emphasising the duty of immigration solicitors, not just to their clients, but the paramount duty that they have to the court, and the need to ensure that lawyers have got full disclosure. And that's something that we've seen recently um, with a very well-reported, widely reported Um, Afghan case where it was alleged that the Secretary of State was in contempt and it later emerged that the clients had not been entirely forthcoming with the solicitors and the solicitors had therefore inadvertently ended up in a situation where they weren't giving the full picture to the court at the time that they were making the application. And that is a real danger in, in urgent cases, particularly where you've got a client who is in detention, they are desperate that um, they're, they're looking for solicitors, they instruct people potentially at the last minute. And of course, if somebody's in detention, the idea is normally that they're, they're going to be removed in the relatively near future. Um, and it's hard to get hold of the previous file from a previous firm. There may be no previous file. So it's hard to cross-reference what the client is telling you against um, the actual documents in the case. And the courts are being very clear that if you are in that situation, then first of all, you're in a dangerous situation. And secondly, you're going to need to make it really clear to a judge if you're making an urgent injunction application that you, about what you do and don't know, and what you've able to be what you've able to be able to confirm independently of the client. Um, I'd recommend having a look at the training course that we've got available for members on urgent injunction applications. And we haven't yet updated it with some of the, the latest case law because these cases seem to be coming thick and fast at the moment. Um, but there's we, we look at these kind of ethical issues, what the duty to the court is, go through the application forms to use. And there's also um, a, a podcast interview between me and Jared Lukmani where we talk about this issue of, look, are these cases cases that a solicitor really should be taking on? And it's suggested really that there might be cases where you're not able to act and it will be unsafe for you to take on a new client in those kinds of circumstances. Now, finally, on the subject of judges being critical of lawyers, um, we have another case, Secretary of State for the Home Department against Barry, 2018, EWCA, Civ 790. Now, perhaps slightly unusually, we have seen a few cases like this, to be fair, but um, most have been Um, one side rather than the other. This is an example of the Home Office and the Home Office lawyers um, being criticised. And it's really, frankly, the Home Office's legal team, which is the subject of criticism here in this Court of Appeal judgment. And if I summarise, essentially, it's it's another deportation case. Um, The um, Home Office wasn't happy with the upper tribunal judge decision, which um, allowed the appeal against deportation and attempted to appeal to the Court of Appeal and included in the grounds of appeal that there may have been, and I'm quoting here, that there may have been a systemic failure by the UT when applying paragraphs 398 and 399 of the immigration rules. Now, applying the second appeals test, which makes it um, hard to appeal other than where there's uh, some sort of important point of principle or practice, um, permission was actually granted on that basis. However, 
the Secretary of State, basically, it turns out, had no basis for making that assertion. It seemed to have been included really as a means of securing permission to appeal rather than because there was any any sound basis for it. And worse than that, this was only made apparent to the court really the day before the hearing. And I think it would be fair to say that the Court of Appeal was very unhappy with that conduct by the Secretary of State's legal team and ordered that costs be paid on an indemnity basis. And that means essentially that um, the normal rule on proportionality um, doesn't apply in costs. And um, really it's for the um, the paying side to disprove why the costs are necessary. It's going to shift the burden effectively. So it should mean that the, the full commercial costs or, or, or something close to that of, of defending the case could be recovered um, by the claimant's legal team. So interesting example of, of some criticism, but um, of course that doesn't really dilute the fact that we see an awful lot of deportation cases going up to the Court of Appeal, most of which are allowed. And I think, in fact, I've got one of those to report um, in just a few moments. Before we get there, though, um, report another case in the Court of Appeal, this one on unlawful delays by the Home Office. And it's it's a case, um, Secretary of State for the Home Department against SAID, S-A-I-D, reference 2018, EWCA, CIV, 627. And it's a, it's a sad set of facts. And um, unfortunately, one of the respondents had died just months after finally being granted indefinite leave to remain, having waited for 10 years for that entitlement to be recognised by the Home Office. And and what essentially went wrong is that um, the, 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 the lead sponsor in this case had become a British citizen in 2003 as a result of amendments to the British Nationality Act um, because of historic discrimination, essentially, and um, then sponsored her husband and sons to apply for indefinite leave to remain as her dependents. And that application was made in 2004, but the Home Office didn't decide it until October 2014. So it's a delay of, well, 10 years, basically. Um, the judge in the um, court below, in the High Court, had held that uh, this was a breach of human rights and awarded damages as, as a result, which is an unusual course to take. And certainly we've seen litigation on, on Home Office delay in previous cases, which has often not really gotten very far. But the, the 10 years in this case was enough for the High Court and then for the Court of Appeal to, to, to agree and say that enough is enough and that that does breach human rights and it goes um, really beyond um, beyond the, the, the normal standards and um, did justify an award of damages on the particular facts of the case. Um, a sort of interesting sub-point which is made is that the Home Office had argued that there'd been a failure to pursue the internal Home Office complaints procedure and therefore... Um, judicial review was not the appropriate remedy. And the Court of Appeal made pretty short work of that, saying that um, that simply wasn't the case, um, given the scale of the delay that had occurred and the seriousness of the complaints being made in this particular case. That doesn't necessarily mean that um, that's a green light to ignore the Home Office internal complaints procedure in other cases, but certainly in this case it was a very unimpressive argument as far as the Court was concerned. Um, another important case, this one from Europe. So this is from the Court of Justice of the European Union, and it's the Vomero case. Fairly long-running, and we've reported on it previously domestically and also the Advocate General's opinion. And this is around um, the different thresholds or tests that are applied in deportation cases. So um, lawyers will be familiar with this. There's sort of essentially three tiers of protection. The first tier is just where you've got residents, and it's it's hard to deport EU nationals, but but it's 
feasible in, in case of serious criminality or where you've got somebody who, who pose a real risk of reoffending. There's then an enhanced level of protection, um, which is where you've been uh, acquired permanent residence, which requires five years of continuous residence usually. Um, and then there's an even higher level of protection requiring imperative grounds of public security, where um, the directive says that somebody has been resident in the host member state for the previous 10 years. And um, the facts of the Vomero case were um, unusual. I'm not going to, to go into detail hugely here because we've, we've written it up previously, but it was um, somebody who uh, was technically an Italian national but had come to the UK many decades previously um, as, um, as a child and had lived in the UK essentially almost all, almost all of his life. Um, and uh, the question was, you know, had he acquired permanent residence at any point He'd been in and out of prison um, a lot, and he hadn't necessarily been continuously working, um, honestly at least, uh, for a continuous period of five years at any time. So it wasn't actually that clear that he had acquired permanent residence, despite his very long residence in the United Kingdom. Anyway, the court holds that you do have to have permanent residence in order to acquire the highest level of protection, the imperative grounds of public security protection. So the 10 years does have to include having permanent residence but also held that um, the fact that you've gone to prison doesn't automatically um, disrupt that 10-year period and and reset the clock, so to speak, on acquiring it. Um, It may do, but it depends on an overall assessment of whether um, the the integration of the person has been broken, basically. So it's, it's it's a fairly complex judgment because that kind of um, has integration have integrative links been been broken is a fairly subjective um, judgment which isn't terribly helpful when when one's um, trying to to assess a particular case but um, nevertheless that's what the outcome of the case is. So I said I was going to mention um, yet another court of appeal case upholding a deportation and this is the case of El Gazaz against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWCA Civ 532. And in this case, the claimant, Mr. El Ghazaz, um, had certainly wasn't any stranger, uh, I think, as um, our, our write-up says by, um, I think this one's by Thomas Beaumont, um, wasn't any stranger to the inside of a prison cell, essentially. And he'd, he'd committed a, a large number of offences over quite a substantial period of time. He also, though, had very serious mental um, ill health issues. And there, there was a big question about whether... Um, he met the very compelling circumstances test in Part 5A of the 2002 Act as amended, um, particularly looking at Section 117C, capital C, and really the the statutory considerations which apply in foreign criminal cases. Um, Ultimately, he loses his case. Um, So I I don't think we need to go over the, um, the, the facts in any more depth than that. Um, I'm now going to go through a few slightly shorter cases. Um, First of these is um, from the Tribunal, Williams, Scope of Liable to Deportation, 2018, UKUT 116. And in this case, somebody rather ingeniously argued that under, uh, I was just mentioning Part 5A a moment ago, carrying on with Part 5A, this is Section 117B, Subsection 6, which only applies to a person who is not liable to deportation. And this is essentially the... um, where you've got a relationship with a qualifying partner or qualifying child. Um, public interest doesn't require your removal. But it says that it only applies to a person who's not liable to remove to, to deportation. And it was rather ingeniously argued that a person who has already been deported 
is no longer liable to deportation and therefore they could benefit from section 117b6. Um, the tribunal, perhaps unsurprisingly, one might think, um, concluded that wasn't right. And one can see that it was arguable on a sort of strict black letter law um, sense, but uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the tribunal rejected that argument and held that somebody who has actually been deported does remain liable to deportation. Also on deportation, we've got the case of Yusuf, meaning of liable to deportation, 2018 UK UT 117. Now, this is... I, my, my write-up of this is, is very short, but I suggest that I think this is wrong in law. And you, you can probably, if you're a lawyer, you'll probably see why from me reading out the beginning of the, the headnote, which reads, Section 32 of the UK Borders Act 2007 impliedly amends Section 35A of the Immigration Act 1971 by removing the, Secretary, the function of the Secretary of State of deeming a person's deportation to be conducive to the public good. Now, it carries on. I really don't think, think that's that's very likely, frankly. Um, some sort of deemed amendment doesn't seem um, a terribly neat solution. Um, there, there was a, an alternative that seemed to be open to the tribunal, which it didn't really look at, um, which was to look for the look through the decision notice for some sort of indication that the Secretary of State considered that deportation would be conducive to the public good. And it would be very surprising if there was no indication in the refusal letter that that was the case. Um, because certainly my, my take has always been that the automatic deportation provisions in the 2007 Act basically instruct the Secretary of State how to exercise discretion under Section 35A, but don't remove the um, requirement for the Secretary of State to still reach a judgment under that. Um, so it's kind of parliamentary uh, instructions of the Secretary of State, but to say that it kind of completely substitutes the decision-making process for uh, the Secretary of State, I think is perhaps a step too far. Anyway, we'll, we'll see if that goes any further or or, um, or not. Okay, moving on to um, another European case. This is case MP against Secretary of State for the Home Department, reference C5, sorry, 353-16. And this is on subsidiary protection for people who might be intentionally deprived of healthcare in the future. Um, it's an interesting one. It's, it's, it's a Sri Lankan national who claimed asylum on the basis that he'd been detained and tortured by the Sri Lankan security forces as a member of the Tamil Tigers. And he said that if he was returned to Sri Lanka, he'd be at risk of further ill treatment for the same reason. He had a number of pretty serious mental health issues here in the UK and was receiving treatment for them. And part of his case was that he wouldn't be uh, able to get that treatment if he was removed and that that would have a very negative effect on his um, personal integrity, on his, on his human rights. And um, th there's two interesting bits of this. One is that the um, CJEU holds that serious deterioration in mental health um, could, which, which could endanger their life, uh, a person's life, would actually amount to a breach of human rights for that person to be removed. And they build on the Papishvili case uh, from Strasbourg in, in, in adopting that conclusion. And that was one, that's a, a case that um, essentially, I think perhaps arguably confirms a line of case law um, here in the UK already, that somebody who's at serious risk of suicide, um, they can't necessarily be removed because it would be a breach of their, their human rights. Um, but it's interesting to see that um, reflected quite clearly in a, a CJEU judgment. And then the, the second um, interesting element is that the court says that intentional deprivation of health care on arrival would amount to um, serious harm such that a person is entitled to subsidiary protection. 
Um, so the, the first one I talked about, which is um, essentially a breach of human rights, that doesn't really entitle anybody to any additional residence rights. It just means they can't be removed. And here in the UK, they'd usually be put on a two and a half year uh, grant of discretionary leave, which repeats for 10 years until they, they, they qualify for settlement. Whereas if you do qualify for subsidiary protection, then that should be a, a five year grant of status, um, which potentially can be renewed, um, which potentially uh, leads to settlement at the at the end if you still need it. So, um, so some interesting arguments there, not applicable in a huge number of cases, I should think, but um, very useful in those cases where they do arise. Okay, there was also a new country guidance case on um, return to Kabul in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm not going to go through the details of that. It's quite an interesting, nuanced case if you're dealing with any Afghan asylum cases. Um, Not hugely good news for appellants, but it doesn't completely shut the door either, depending on the facts of the case. So um, worth studying that one in some detail if you have an Afghan case. Um, An interesting post that I want to um, flag up by um, Bilal Shabir, one of our writers, on um, the quite quite vexed, um, rather dry, but very important issue of appeal rights in um, EEA residence cases where somebody's refused um, a residence card, they're a family member from a third country, and they potentially face removal by the Home Office. And looking at where the appeal um, rights might flow from and whether there is a right of appeal. And um, I think I, I agree with pretty much everything that um, Bilal says in this post, and it, it, it bears careful reading because I think there is a danger that judges aren't quite thinking things through in the conclusions that have been reached in this series of cases, and there is a certain amount of picking and choosing as well from from higher authority, um, particularly the Amir Taymor, um case in the Court of Appeal. So it, it's an interesting one, and um, I think watch this space. It's not necessarily going to be the um, the last word we hear from judges on that issue. Moving on now to a very important case in the cases where it's applicable, um, but I, uh, we've done a fairly short write-up because the headnote was really rather good in this case. It's a case called AJ, bracket, section 94B, Kieran Bindloss Questions, Nigeria, reference 2018, UKUT 115IAC. And essentially the tribunal is suggesting that it is very far from automatic that where a person um, faces removal or, or is trying to return to the UK for that matter, Um, because they have been removed or deported and they have um, an appeal right which they want to exercise within the UK, um, but they've been given one of these um, clearly unfounded or um, simply um, deport first, um, appeal later certificates under Section 94B. um, The the tribunal has to carefully consider, essentially, um, whether the person really does need to be in the UK in order to be at their appeal hearing. And the um, tribunal says that there are four questions, really, that a first-tier tribunal judge should be asking about whether it's necessary um, for the appeal to take place in the UK. Firstly, has the appellant's removal pursuant to a Section 94B certificate deprived the appellant of the ability to secure legal representation and or give instructions and receive advice from United Kingdom lawyers? I have to say, hard to see how that question is going to be answered in a case where it might be applicable because the person doesn't have lawyers, but, but there you go. Question two, if not, is the appellant's absence from the UK likely materially to impair the production of expert or other professional evidence in respect of the appellant upon which the appellant would otherwise have relied? Three, if not, is it necessary to hear live evidence from the appellant? Four, if so, can such evidence in all the circumstances be given in a satisfactory manner by means of video link? 
And that's the that's the four questions. And if the answer to any of those is no, then essentially it should be an in-country appeal from within the UK. The person shouldn't be removed or perhaps should even be readmitted in, in one of those cases where they've already been removed. Um, I have heard that the Home Office is being much more proactive about providing decent quality video links from certain countries. Um, I, I haven't firsthand had any experience of that. I'd be interested to hear from you if you have. Right, finally, um, the tribunal, I, I did this right up myself, the tribunal has gotten round, what, three or four years after the Immigration Act 2014 started to come into force, um, and the tribunal has finally asked itself, what actually is a human rights appeal anyway? So um, we, we've all been kind of coasting along on various different assumptions and, you know, fairly well-reasoned assumptions, but nevertheless assumptions without the tribunal actually getting around to examining the basis of its own jurisdiction for those last three or four years. But finally, we do have a couple of cases from the upper tribunal which, which look at these questions um, quite carefully and and usefully as well, in, in, in my view. Um, the Frankly, you know, in this age of litigants in person, we could do with some really clear, well-spelt-out headnotes and reasoning, and, and perhaps the determinations could be criticised on, on that front. But um, generally speaking, they, they certainly help us understand where we are at with what constitutes a human rights claim and also um, what constitutes refusal of a human rights claim. So the first of these cases is um, by Hinga, Rule 22, Human Rights Appeal Requirements, 2018, UKUT 90. And in this case, it's an interesting set of facts, fairly unusual. It's somebody who had previously held indefinite leave to remain in the UK, but it lapsed when she stayed outside the country for more than two years. She then applied for a visa to return to the UK under the returning resident rule, and that application was refused by an entry clearance officer. So she attempted to appeal, sent in a notice of appeal to the tribunal, and also travelled to the UK and entered with temporary admission, which is not entirely unusual in these cases, in fact. I have seen other examples of returning residents who've been refused, but have then later been able to enter with temporary admission. Um, so the notice of appeal was accepted by the tribunal in this case. Hearing was listed, but the Home Office decided that to argue that there was no appeal at all because human rights hadn't been mentioned in the original application, therefore there was no human rights claim. And the first-tier judge, unfortunately, was persuaded by that and declared the appeal to be invalid. So the appellant attempted to appeal this, but acting resident judge Appleyard, as he then was, refused permission on the basis that there was no valid appeal, therefore permission couldn't be granted, and the only application, uh, the only available remedy was an application for judicial review. So the upper tribunal um, then, on a renewed application, does grant permission and rightly points out that um, there's, a, there's a long-standing Court of Appeal authority on this, and it's been confirmed in the tribunal as well, a case of JH Zimbabwe and Abiyat, that where you've got a reasoned determination that there's no right of appeal, that is an appealable decision which can be reviewed um, on an appeal to a higher court, rather than having to go down the route of an application for judicial review. On to the substance, the Home Office had argued that it wasn't enough for a person to state this is a human rights claim in order for the application to actually be a human rights claim within the meaning of Section 82 of the 2002 Act, which is where the right of appeal comes from. Um, so the tribunal disagrees with that, although it doesn't really have to actually decide the point on this case um, because there was no such assertion in fact in the application that had been made. Um, nevertheless, the tribunal says that a bare or unsubstantiated claim is, however, very arguably still a claim. Um, and in such a situation, the appropriate course may be to certify such a claim under Section 94 of the 2002 Act on the basis that the claim is clearly unfounded. 
Um, that's certainly often more certainty. So if you say it's a human rights claim, it's always a human rights claim, even if you know, ultimately you might lose that appeal or it's not a very good case. On the facts of the case, though, no human rights claim had explicitly been made, but there were clearly elements of the case that potentially raised human rights type arguments around private and family life in the UK. So was it a human rights claim or does there need to be some sort of explicit assertion? Now, it's not the first time that these kind of issues have been considered by judges. And in a case called AT, a judicial review case, 2017, EWHC 2589 admin, Miss Justice Kerr had accepted the concept of an implicit human rights claim. Uh, it's, we'd written that up previously in a, uh, it's, it's a domestic violence case. And certainly the Home Office itself accepts that there can be such a thing as an implicit human rights claim, and indeed that most um, paragraphs of Appendix FM would constitute human rights claims, a refusal of most paragraphs of Appendix FM, spouse claims, child claims, whatever, um, and that the words human rights claim don't actually have to be used for it to be a human rights claim. Um, nevertheless, they reserve the right to argue that it's not on the facts of the case. And the upper tribunal accepts that that's the case and that there, it is possible to make an implicit human rights claim if, um, if there is an, a human rights element to it, essentially. There's then, I think this is where the determination becomes a bit more difficult. Um, for there to be a right of appeal, there's got to be not just a human rights claim, but a refusal of a human rights claim. And in this case, perhaps unsurprisingly, the entry clearance officer had not made any reference to human rights because human rights hadn't been mentioned in the application. So there's, there's no sort of standard paragraph inserted on human rights. The entry clearance manager had, and the tribunal in this case says, well, that helps to cast light on what the reasons were of the entry clearance officer which seems frankly to be a bit of a sidestepping of the issue. And I think it would have been simpler just to accept that if there's an implicit human rights claim, there's an implicit human rights refusal as well, but that the, the tribunal doesn't quite go that far. Right, there's a second case as well to mention here on human rights appeals, which is Charles Human Rights Appeal Scope 2018 UK UT 89. And this is about um, situations where an appeal um, falls within the rules or the law um, and on what basis might such an appeal potentially be allowed. And this, again, was a, a, quite an unusual set of facts and rather a um, rather important one. It's, it's, it's turned out recently with the Windrush cases. This was somebody who was a long-term resident Commonwealth citizen, um, had committed criminal offences, I think, but was, um, in theory, protected from deportation by Section 7 of the Immigration Act 1971, which um, pr basically prevents certain existing residents as of 1st of January 1973 from being deported. So if he could show that he'd been resident in the UK before the 1st January 1973, he couldn't be deported and the appeal um, would, he argued, be, have to be allowed. And the Home Office argued essentially that he hadn't been resident at that time. That what the judge had done in the first tier, uh, unfortunately, was allow the um, appeal on the basis that the deportation decision was not in accordance with the law. And that is not one of the grounds which is available in the immigration appeals regime introduced by the Immigration Act 2014. So the tribunal had to look at this again. And essentially they follow the approach that we've all been following um, since 2014, 2015, and which was uh, hinted at in a case called Mustafa in, in the context of uh, visit appeal. And that's to apply the five-step approach of Lord Bingham and the House of Lords in the case of Rasgar and ultimately ask is it proportionate, bearing in mind that it's usually the law and the rules which set out what is and isn't proportionate in the vast majority of cases. And if the law allows you to remain in the UK, then how can it be proportionate for you to be removed, um, or lawful fees be removed for that matter? 
Um, so it, it, that, that's the kind of conventional analysis that we've all been applying, and that is the analysis that's adopted by the tribunal here um, happily, because it, it, if we'd all been wrong all along, then that would have been a bit of a disaster. So that wraps up April 2018. I hope that's been useful, and I'll see you next month. Bye.